Uh, I just wanted to uh, uh, go over a few of these things just briefly. So, on the subject of why do we need discernment, God commands it. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, we're told to find out what pleases the Lord. So we need discernment, spiritually speaking, to figure out what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 4.14 speaks of the danger of being washed back and forth by various uh, false ideas. And if we don't have truth anchoring us in God's word, it's easy for whatever new fad or idea that comes out to be the thing that sways us away from following God, and we're chasing after that thing instead. Uh, I believe I put the passage here, 1 John 4, but just this idea that um, false prophets abound. Uh, particularly 1 John 4, verse 3, under the verses to consider section on the other side of your page. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Verse 1, he had said, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so it is possible for someone to come along and be Antichrist without being the Antichrist, there have been and will continue to be many false prophets who seek to lead God's people astray. And then the fourth reason that we need discernment is according to Hebrews 5, it is a mark of maturity. Uh, the author of Hebrews rebukes his audience and says, Concerning him, Jesus, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so if we feel that we're going to have discernment just by a process of osmosis, if I sit through enough sermons, if I have enough Bibles in my house, those sorts of things, we're not going to have spiritual discernment. There is an element of practice and, and discipline and growth in this area. And that's a mark of Christian maturity. So then the next question, where do we find discernment? The first place that we find discernment is clearly in the Bible. Hebrews 4.12, I would say that we find discernment in the Bible because it is the, the Bible which discerns us, so to speak. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the verse where it talks about the Word of God being like a sword that pierces to the innermost parts of our, our being. And so if God's Word discerns us, where better can we turn to find the discernment that God desires us to have? 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, the Scriptures are the pathway by which we know God. Verse 3 of 2 Peter 1, His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 4, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, with the result that, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so we find in the Bible the discernment that we need to become the sort of people God wants us to be. John 8.32 says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, but that's set in a very specific context. What is the truth? It's truth about Jesus. It's truth about following him. That it is which sets us free from bondage to sin and Satan in the way of this world. 2 Timothy 3.15, it is truth that ultimately leads us to salvation. Paul speaks to Timothy and says, from being a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation. And so where do we find discernment? First and foremost, in the Bible. Connected with that, though, it is by the Spirit's power. 1 Corinthians 2.14 points out that with regard to all the things that Paul's teaching the Corinthian church, the natural man cannot understand, accept, believe the things of God 
because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to try really hard, I'm going to understand these things. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And we also need to ask, how do we find discernment? Look at the example, for, or consider the example of Solomon in the Old Testament asking for wisdom. Solomon says, you've made me king. I'm young, I'm inexperienced. This is a great people. I need your wisdom, Lord. And God grants him wisdom. And so there's a degree to which God is ready and willing to give us discernment, but we need to ask. We ask him through prayer. How do we see this in the New Testament? Well, in Philippians 1, 9 through 10, which we'll look at in a moment, and also Colossians 1, 9, we see Paul's prayers for the churches in which he prays that God would give them the discernment that they need to live in a way pleasing to God. So then what does discernment look like? Philippians 1, 9 through 11, we see the manner of discernment is love, not pride. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Love is set in contrast to pride in a number of places in the New Testament. Consider 1 Corinthians 13 and other places as well. So I think Paul is saying here, love in connection with knowledge and discernment, not look at what I know, but look at how I can serve with what I know. What is the result of this discernment? The result of this discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Discernment is a tool that God uses to help prepare us so we're ready to stand before him in the day when Jesus comes back. So that we're not saying, Jesus is not coming back and we're saying, well, Lord, I thought I was supposed to be doing this thing and Jesus says, no, this is what you are supposed to be doing. Instead, we are clear on what God has called us to be and do. There is, in connection with this, the fruit of Christ's righteousness. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. It's not my own skill, my own wisdom, my own self that is producing this. It is the righteousness that is produced in me in connection with Christ that is the nature of the discernment that Paul is talking about here. And then this is that which leads to God's glory. Discernment is not an opportunity for me to come before people and say, look how wise and discerning I am, but rather so that by following better after Christ, God receives more glory. By calling those alongside us to follow better after Christ, God receives more glory. Romans 12.2 is another example of what discernment looks like in the New Testament. Basic idea of Romans 12, verse 2 is this. Don't be conformed to this world. There are ideas of this world that are pressing in on us to shape us and mold us and force us to look at the world from a worldly perspective. In contrast to that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's the renewing of your mind? The renewing of your mind is the encountering of God in his word in such a way that it changes our perspective on what we think feel, and do, so it lines up with the way God wants us to live. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what are some practical steps if we were going to put all these things together, and then we'll look at some examples. If we're going to evaluate any idea, practice, desire, we come across all sorts of things in our daily course of life in the world. The first thing that we need to do is to pray for God's help in understanding the situation. If discernment is the Spirit's work, we need his help, and so we should ask him for it. Secondly, we need to start with what God said. The important thing about what God has said is that it is truth that is external and objective and consists of clear statements in contrast to feelings. And 
The reason this is important is there are so many people in the world today, why do you believe this? Because I feel it to be true. Why do you believe this? Because this is just the way it's got to be. Why do you believe this? This is really what I want to be true when it comes right down to it. And in contrast to that, we start with the Bible and we say, what has God said is true? Which in many cases is not something we're necessarily going to agree with. It's not something we're going to like. It's something that's going to make us uncomfortable because God's truth exposes our sinful hearts and, and forces us to confront the realities about ourselves, we need to start with what God has said. Truth is objective, not subjective in this sense. We need to gather relevant information from outside the Bible. What I say here, the Bible does not per describe per se life in Michigan in 2021, but rather gives principles against which we evaluate present events. Connected with this, Paul's illustrations in Acts 17 show us that even unbelievers can recognize truth and be right about various things. And so sometimes I think there's a hesitation among Christians, uh, or uh, uh, maybe instead of a hesitation, I would say there's a readiness to just throw aside anything that comes from someone who's not a professing Christian, because we say, well, what could they possibly know? But the reality is, to the extent that their view of the world lines up with God's view of the world, they can express truth even though they haven't come to have their hearts right before God. And so just because someone who said a particular thing is not a Christian, we don't immediately throw it out. So we gather relevant information from outside the Bible about the specific situation, about the specific idea, those kinds of things. Then the fourth step, and this is the hard thing, this is the thing that takes a lot of work, and so we tend to skip this, is to evaluate the extra-biblical information against biblical truth. What has God said? What are all the, or, or at least some of the ideas out there in the world about this? How, does those, how do those two then line up? So, for example, what presuppositions do I have that contradict the Bible, either directly or in a story of how life works that doesn't fit God's? So that would be one way of evaluating extra-biblical information. So if I come to it and I'm like, here's what I'm convinced of, I always have to put that under what God has said in the Bible because I can believe things about the world that are wrong and false because I've absorbed them from the culture around me, from things people have said to me, all of those different influences. Secondly, does the source of the info know what he's talking about? So, for example, um, let's say there's a guy who digs, digs holes in the ground for, for a living. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing like sinful about that occupation. But we would not expect that person to... Um, be the first and primary authority on geopolitical events in Afghanistan, for example. Because his sphere of expertise is in this, not in that. So that's something to consider as well. Does the source of the info benefit if I believe him? So there are many people out in the world who will say, here's what you need to believe. And if you read the fine print, it's like endorsed by so-and-so, or it's... Uh, and here's this product that I'm selling. And so I think we need to be wise and discerning about those sorts of things because there are people who stand to benefit if we accept what they're saying, and that clouds the, the degree to which we can trust what they're saying. Then in the last point under this, is the source of the information telling me only what I want to hear? Sometimes, if I really want to do something, what's really easy for me to do? Go find someone who agrees with me, and then they'll say, here's what you want to hear. But think about how that works, for example, in the Old Testament. Ahab has all these prophets around him. 
Are you going to prosper, Ahab? Oh, absolutely. What does God do? God sends the prophet who says, Ahab, the Lord prophesies disaster against you. Ahab didn't want to hear that. That's why he had 400 other guys telling him, here's what he wants to hear. That same situation can happen today. And so we need to be careful as we evaluate extra biblical information against biblical truth. And then the last step is to make a judgment about what to think or do or feel about a particular idea, situation, decision, all those sorts of things. Keeping in mind what is acceptable may not be helpful in a given moment. I think the principle where this comes from, Paul says, I'm willing to become all things to all men. What that did not mean is I abandon what God has said and tell people what they want to hear. What it did mean was when I'm with the Jews, I'm not going to go out of my way to break all of their customs because that distracts from the message that I'm trying to speak to them. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm going to be... Uh, like in Acts 17, Paul comes to them. He says, I'm not going to come in and say, you stupid idolaters. That's the attitude Jewish people would have had toward Gentiles at the time. Paul instead says, hey, I see you guys are very religious, but here's what God says. Here's the unknown God. And so the approach is important. Secondly, under this, what is appropriate for one age may not be for another. So particularly, we're going to talk about this, some of these principles we've reviewed over the last few weeks. There's something that an adult could potentially benefit from being exposed to and thinking through carefully, uh, some, some novel with ideas that are contrary to the scripture in terms of the philosophy of, of it, um, that a five-year-old or a 10-year-old, it could be more dangerous for them to encounter it. And for that matter, it could be dangerous for the adult if they lack a lot of maturity spiritually, but that's something to factor in as well. And it's also important to remember that teaching or evaluation is different from entertainment. When I'm doing something for purposes of teaching or instruction, I tend to be more actively engaged in thinking about it. When I approach it, a lot of things in the world, for purposes of entertainment, it's a passive receiving, and I'm not thinking about, typically, the good or the bad of what I'm encountering. So, uh, someone raised a few weeks ago, let's look at some examples for discussion with regard to particular types of movies, okay? So let's take the example of the Harry Potter movie because that was something that we discussed a little while back. So let's talk about that. You fill in the blank with any other movie with a worldview that is not biblical. So I like science fiction, or at least I did. It's hard to find good science fiction. But the premise of most, if not all, science fiction is Here's a view of the future that doesn't line up with what we see in the book of Revelation. And so as a result, it generally at best leaves God out of the picture and at worst completely denies God and, and argues strongly against him. So you could say, all right, fill in the blank instead of Harry Potter, which is fantasy. Here's something about science fiction. Here's something about historical fiction. Here's something about whatever else. We're just using this as an example. So... Following our steps, pray for wisdom. We tend to skip this because we don't necessarily want to become persuaded that the thing that we really want to do, we shouldn't do. But if we're Christians and we're submitting to God's authority, we need to start with praying for wisdom. We need to consider what has God said about themes that occur in, for example, the movie or the book or whatever else. So... Some of the themes that might come up would be things like love, death, truth, good versus evil. What does the Bible say about all those sorts of things? What does the Bible say love is like? Love is not 
per se or only a feeling. Love is an opportunity to serve other people. Death is not, um, in, in The Lord of the Rings, which is another movie, they put in this whole bit that wasn't in Tolkien's books. He was a Catholic and had a more Christian perspective on the afterlife. But they put in this whole book of what is death like? Well, it's like, you know, the sun rising on a clear morning and you go out across the sea and, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, that's not really the biblical perspective at all, is it? What has God said about it? God said, there's two results. You're with me or you're not with me. That's the end of every man. And so, what does the Bible say about those sorts of things? So then moving on to the next step, extra biblical ideas. I think one question in this case would be, what reasons do Christians give for watching or not watching this movie? Uh, and then evaluate these reasons against Scripture. And we would use the ideas from our previous two discussions on discernment, things like moral tone. So if you remember, I think you talked about this last week. Obviously, I wasn't here. But with regard to moral tone, is evil presented in a way that it seems bad, or is it presented in a way that seems normal and no big deal? That would be the criteria of normal tone. Some of the other ones that had more to do with the... Remember, there were six or seven things on the list Things like extreme or gratuitous violence. Those would fall under the, more the criteria of gratuitousness. Is it just there to be there, or is it there for some purpose? So, for example, if you're watching a historical documentary about World War II, there may be a large amount of violence, but it's not there just to be there because somebody thought it'd be a good idea to put it in there. It's there because it actually happened. That's different from a, a, a fictional thing in which someone put it there just for its own sake. Explicitness. We talked about this, I think, three or four weeks ago. What we see can stick with us longer than what we read, depending on the person. And so we need to be aware of the impact of those things on us. So, um, so evaluate these reasons against Scripture. Let's say that some of the reasons are you should watch this movie, Harry Potter, something else, because there is a conflict between good versus evil, or because it is true to themes in life. Instead of being one of these stories where everyone lives happily ever after, the reality is that some people don't survive great battles and there can be sadness along with, with triumph and some of those sorts of themes. So people would say, these themes correspond to life, so it would be a good thing to, to watch. Some people would say, well, don't watch it because in fantasy novels, often the elements like witchcraft are presented as normal. Clearly, the Bible condemns those kinds of things, uh, Saul and others. Or they say, well, there's a degree of moral ambiguity because the good characters lie just like the bad characters. Now, we could say, well, they lie for better reasons, but it's still lying. That doesn't make it okay. Um, or uh, how is the evil presented. Sometimes it's presented in an attractive way, or sometimes it's presented not in an attractive way. And again, we'd have to wrestle with these things. And then the fifth step would be to make a decision on whether you're going to watch this movie or another similar movie. I think we need to recognize that in some of these cases, it is acceptable to disagree. The question is, do we have good biblical reasons for doing something, or is it just, this is popular, so I'm going to do it? Is it just, I like it, so I'm going to do it? 
or is there a particular biblical reason? And we need to recognize with regard to our consciences, if we say, well, my conscience says it's okay, my conscience says it's not okay, it is possible for your conscience to be too sensitive and say things that God says are acceptable or not. It is possible for your conscience to be too blunted and to say things that God says you shouldn't do are okay. The reality in both cases, like we talked about when we went through the book on conscience, is are we constantly calibrating, adjusting our consciences based on Scripture? So, in light of that first example, any quick comments before we move on to the next thing? Bob? I think a lot of times, whether we skip these steps or not, down to why am I so heavily pursuing to be entertained and I think a lot of it in my opinion comes down to time management more than anything yeah I I would say in connection with that that I think that I think that there's a time and a place for rest and or relaxation And I think in America, we tend to spend way too much time in that. So to Bob's point, if you say, well, I have to come up with a reason to watch this movie because I've already watched four movies this week and I need one for tonight, that's a sign that we're not, to Bob's point, using our time very well. There's probably, there's almost certainly something else that we're neglecting. I don't think we necessarily need to have the attitude, though, that every waking moment has to be intentionally purposeful in a, in a, what's the right word? Um, like I just feel guilty. So uh, I saw, some of you read Babylon BSR an article, John Piper plays video game for one minute on his birthday and then repents immediately afterward. <laughs> the point of that is the idea of he's very committed to here's all the responsibilities God has given me. I don't, and, and, and that's good. I also think that the book of Ecclesiastes would say there's a time for enjoying pleasure of food and family and the fruits of our labors and all those sorts of things in such a way that not every single moment has to be spent reading our Bible. To the same point, we tend to waste a lot of time too. So we have to be careful of that. All right, let's move on to the next example. And... Um, And and let me lay this one out for you. So, earlier this year, there was a lot of discussion of people saying that the election was stolen. Okay? You all heard that, right? That's not a new idea. That was an idea that was being presented out there. What would be the approach for evaluating that idea? Pray for wisdom. Consider, for example, what God has said about government. What's the purpose of government? How should governments function? Consider what the Bible says about God's sovereignty in the world. Consider the pattern of whether God tends to give good leaders to wicked nations or whether God tends to let wicked nations have wicked leaders. I mean, just look at what we've been looking at in 2 Kings the last few weeks. Thirdly, why do people, going to the idea of evaluating extra-biblical evidence or things connected with this idea, why do people think that the election was stolen and what evidence is given? Because again, it's not, well, the result is different from what I wanted it to be, so it must be, this is the reason. But what actual evidence is being given? And then fourthly, evaluate the reasons that people give against the Bible. 
Now, I think we need to recognize that, to my knowledge, all of the cases that were brought with regard to election fraud have been thrown out to this point. And some people have also gotten in trouble with their law licenses. Now, we could say that there's a vast conspiracy and that's the reason that's the case. Or we can say that a lot of people really wanted something to be true that may have been true to a smaller degree, but not in sufficient degree to change the outcome. Now, we could dispute that all day. But the question is evaluating these things against what we know to be true. And coming to a conclusion, then number five, decide whether we believe the election was stolen or not. And realize a couple of things. Even if the election was stolen, and I'm not saying that it was, but even if the election was stolen, God's plan still goes forward. Now, I'm not saying that when it comes to an election, there's some coming up potentially later this year for in some like cities and so forth. I'm not saying vote for the worst possible candidate because you think you live in a wicked city and they deserve God's punishment, so we're going to vote for the worst possible option. I'm not saying that. But I, like I was saying with the thing with Ahab and all these other wicked kings of Israel and Judah, if God gives bad leaders to people who are living wickedly, that can be a sign of his judgment, and we, to a certain extent, if we oppose that, may be found to be fighting against God. Again, I'm not saying that's absolutely what happened, but it's something that we should consider seriously, and this sort of goes into the story arcs of what we see in Scripture. Even beyond that, here's something that I've struggled with, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic when I was frustrated with all of the decisions that the governor was making with regard to lockdowns and whatever else. If we spend all of our time focused on political issues instead of witnessing, People will stop listening to the 5 or 10% of the time when we post verses on Facebook or talk to them about those things in conversations. They're going to focus on all these other things with the result that because we've spent so much of our time and effort pushing something about politics, this person's soul is now in jeopardy because we're not telling them about Jesus. And to the extent that you burn all your bridges with people over issues like politics that in the grand scheme of eternity are not going to matter in 50 or 100 years, you may be closing off doors to say things to people that really matter. And so that's part of the sermon as well. All right. Let's go to the third example here. Third example is with regard to something that I've been thinking about a lot the last few weeks, and I'm not trying to simply rehash things that I've already said. I'm trying to make an important point with regard to some factors we need to consider with these things. So, perhaps you find a video that tells you about hidden cures for disease that Big Pharma is suppressing. Same steps, pray for wisdom. Consider what God has said about subjects like health, happiness, where we find hope, our response to suffering, and going on back to the point about God giving wicked leaders to wicked people. In a similar way, there is an arc, a trajectory, a thing that we see in the scripture of the pattern of life for God's people and for Jesus himself was suffering before victory. We live in a rich and insulated, and society filled with ease. And so to us, that idea seems foreign. But for reasons that I think have a lot less to do with what the Bible actually says, 
and a lot more to do with just what we've observed in the last hundred years or what people say the American dream is supposed to look like in our lives. So, someone says, here's a cure for whatever it is. So let's study what a variety of people have said about the disease. Some have said it's not real. There are people who deny that there's actually any such thing as disease or evil or whatever in the world. I'm not really sure how those people believe that honestly, but there are people who will say things like that. Some will, instead of denying that something exists, their main focus is, well, here's all these stories of fill-in-the-blank famous person did such and such, and now everything's okay. Or, some will say there's a secret solution, and it's easy to fix this if you just do fill-in-the-blank. Some will say, pay me $10,000 a week and I'll fix it for you. Some will say, donate $1,000 to my parachurch ministry and I will heal you. Some will say, here's the scientific reasons we've studied for what, whatever the thing is and how to fix it. So, step four, evaluate people's ideas by comparing and contrasting with the Bible. To the idea that suffering and evil is not real, God says suffering is real. Romans 8, the whole creation groans together, even until now, longing for the redemption when Christ returns. As I already mentioned, there is the reality in Scripture that most, or at least a majority of God's people suffered before they were glorified, before they received God's well-done, good, and faithful servant. The prophets, Isaiah is rejected, Jeremiah is thrown into a pit, Daniel's thrown into a den of lions. There's a whole lot more of the prophets, but just those three examples, I think, suffice. Jesus, they thought he was going to come as conquering king. He comes as suffering servant. And then God exalts him because of his obedience. Stephen, stoned to death for preaching the gospel. Paul, there's that whole long list, either in Philippians or Galatians, I forget which at the moment, where it talks about all the things that Paul went through, beaten, shipwrecked, rejected, hungry, cold, naked, without all of the comforts that we expect to be a normal part of our life. And he comes down and he says, I fought the good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. Peter, Peter's crucified. Church history says he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way that Jesus was because he felt he was not worthy to suffer the same way that his Lord did. James. James is put to death by Herod. And the list goes on. Look at Hebrews 11. So God says suffering is real. Does the source that gives us a particular idea agree with God's perspective on the nature of suffering in the world according to the Bible? To the point that someone tells a story and says, here's what a famous person did. And so this must be the right thing to go. Whether it's we're parading this person who just said, I'm a Christian, after one prayer, and we're like, well, now they should tell everybody their theology. Or whether it's this famous person did this thing and it healed them, and so we should do what they said. God rarely uses the wise and rich and powerful to speak his truth. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27. More often than not, God uses those who are weak, and foolish, and not rich. And so they're the ones that God is most often using, the, the despised of the world. So when, when our first and primary evidence for something being the path we should go is, well, this person is well-known, or well-off, or powerful, that's not typically how we would expect God to work in the world. 
What about the idea about, here's this secret thing. God speaks truth clearly, both about Jesus and about all the other topics the Bible says, without confusion, and Paul says, I do not resort to hidden practices that are deceitful. I speak openly the truth. It's not, here's this hidden secret. If you find it, you'll have wonderful things. Paul says, it's laid out in the open. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe in Jesus. And furthermore, believing in Jesus, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul laid out as the gospel. It wasn't this hidden secret thing. Connected with this, God's servants do not exalt themselves. According to 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus. And so in connection with this, is the source that you have come across telling you what you want to hear, what fits ideas you already have, or is he telling you the truth as best he knows? Doctors are often wrong because they're human. And some of them are selfish in the way that they approach things. But you know, I think the biggest reason people don't like doctors because they tell you news you don't want. They tell you, we think you're going to die in a year. They tell you, stop eating this food or you're going to have a heart attack. They tell you all of these sorts of things. That's a big reason, I think, of why we tend not to like them. But that doesn't mean what they're saying is false. I think furthermore, with regard to the idea of pay me all these, uh, all these money and I'll fix these things for you or expand my vast ministry that's on TV and, and you'll get better, God heals people for his own reasons and his glory. John 9, the man born blind, why? So that God will receive glory. Not so that some rich person can pad their pockets. Not so that some person can say, look at this amazing thing that I did. It is quite often we find that people are promising what they cannot fulfill. And we want to believe them, and so we do, but that shows a lack of discernment. Many of these people fit the patterns of false teachers according to 1 and 2 Timothy, 2 Peter and Jude, and various other places in the New Testament. They will say things that we want to hear, they are driven by greed because getting lots of people to promote their brand gives them lots of money. And this can happen even to people who are starting out in a good way. Here's something I think worked for me. Now I'm going to market it. Now I can charge $300 for it instead of 40 bucks because now I'm famous. And so greed and pride become a great motivation for many people. There are many people who repeat lies or bear false witness. They say things that they cannot prove in an attempt to promote their agendas. They ultimately urge, false teachers urge you, trust in me rather than in God. Trust in Chris, trust in Joe, trust in this guy, trust in that guy. Trust in me, don't trust in God. I'm the one who's going to save you. I'm the one who's going to help you. I'm the one who's going to make things better for you. This is a kind of Gnosticism. I'll talk more about that in a moment. With regard to the last one, I think we need to evaluate God deals in truth, not guesses or hearsay, even though speculations or supposed secret knowledge may be more interesting. It's a lot more interesting to say, there's something out there, and it will make my life better if I can just find it. But God deals in truth, not what-ifs and maybes and secret whisperings. 
Ultimately, it comes down to our approach to truth. Gnosticism is based on a mystical, intuitive, subjective, inward, emotional approach to truth, which is not new at all, going back in some form to the Garden of Eden, where Satan questioned God and the words he spoke and convinced Adam and Eve to reject them and accept a lie. And so if someone says, here's this secret knowledge that's going to fix all your problems, you're going to live a long and happy life. How do we evaluate that? Well, we have to make a judgment at some point about what we're going to do with that. Am I making this decision based on what I like or want to be true? That's subjectivism. That's not, here's what God said, that's here's what I want. Versus what actually is true. Facts, propositional truth that God has spoken, and making decisions based on those things. Am I making a particular decision so I can be right and tell everyone about it? I think that's the motivation for so many of these hidden knowledge, secret cure, make your life better, health and wealth things. If I can do it this easy way, I can pat myself on the back and get everybody else signed up for this thing. Am I making this decision based on my supposed happiness or what maximizes my ministry to other people? For example, there are people who say, well, if you drink this thing every hour, if you take these pills every day, if you do these things, whatever, you can beat this and you can live a long and happy life. What sort of ministry do you think you have to people if you're homebound because you're doing your program? If you travel to a special clinic, everything will be okay. You just have to leave your family and your ministry and all those sorts of things behind, but, but you'll be happy and healthy and everything will be better. Maybe. That's why these things are so appealing, because they seem like if we just do them, then everything will be fixed and everything will be okay. And the reality is, sometimes the only solution that we have with a reasonable chance of success is something that's really hard. Which fits the more normal pattern of how things work? If I use sanctification as an illustration, we want sanctification to be, I do something once and I get a zap, and now I never have to deal with that problem again. But the reality is, sanctification is hard work. And the reality is that's how most things in life work. They are hard, they are arduous, they are difficult. In connection about the decisions that we make, about what to believe, what ideas to promote, am I pointing my spouse, my kids, the people around me to Jesus or to my hope and focus on something else? What's a good test of this? Ask your kids what you talk about all the time. Look at how you spend your money. Make a time log of how you spend your time. You'll see what's important to you. And that's what they will learn. And it's quite often not the first and foremost things. It's not Jesus and telling people about him. It's not Jesus and drawing closer to him. It's some other thing because we are easily distracted and burdened. As Hebrews says, we need to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And then when it comes to evaluating what particular direction we're going to go, what things we're going to believe, I think we have to ask ourselves this question, 
is my belief or lack of belief in a particular idea, is that going to lead me to supporting others in a time of grief and sorrow or harassing them so that I can feel better about myself and promote my idea? And the reality is that whatever it is out there, whatever promised panacea will fix all the ills in the world, you can get rich quick if you buy into this company and get all these other people to sign up. And then people bring that into the church. And now people in the church don't really know whether they want you to sign up for their pyramid scheme or talk to them about Jesus. Here's this idea that will make your life better. But are you talking about Jesus or are you talking about that other thing more? Here's this particular theological point that I'm really interested in. It's not really even like the main important thing. It's not Jesus is God. It's not even something about like what mode of baptism to use. It's like some really obscure point over here. But I'm going to go around and I'm going to talk about, everybody, about it to everybody in the church until they all agree with me. And whispers and obsessions over all of these sorts of things can creep in and destroy the unity of the body of Christ. So, we as a congregation need discernment. When it comes to things like movies and entertainment, which, as Bob pointed out, really shouldn't be as big a deal to us as they often are, but we should at least follow the process in evaluating the different things that we choose to do. When we hear about things online, it's easy for us to get caught up in what we think America should be instead of what God has said the church ought to be. And it comes to situations like what our family is going through right now, there are all sorts of ideas out there. But they are not our hope. They are not the gospel. And they cannot be the focus of our attention. And so, in connection with all these things, my prayer, as Paul's prayer would be, is that, as he said in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, this I pray, that your love may still abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of, and praise of God. And so that's the test. Is our manner loving? Is the knowledge and discernment that we focus on, is it things of God or all these other things that can distract us out in the world? Are we getting closer to being ready for the day of Christ? Are we just sort of coasting along? Are we demonstrating being filled with the fruit of righteousness? Is God receiving the glory and praise? That's why discernment matters. That's why God cares about it. That's why we should care about it too. Let's pray. Dear God, as we consider these truths, principles from your word, May you be the focus of our lives. May we approach truth honestly and not shy away from it because it's hard or difficult and not pin our hopes on anything other than Jesus and the resurrection and the return and reign of Christ.
And between now and then, Lord, of course, there are things that we can do, decisions that we have to make in our daily lives, but may they never lead us astray from those core and most important truths. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. For sake of time, um, go ahead and do prayer requests in your groups. And uh, I only had a few from a couple of weeks ago. You may be aware of some more from last week.